Jesus, we love you. And we know that all of the affection and devotion that we pour out, Lord, that you surpass it so greatly that we love because you love us and that there is nowhere we can run and nowhere we can hide to get away from the love of Jesus. And we thank you. We thank you for that truth. Lord, I just pray that you would open our ears and our hearts today to hear whatever it is you have for us. I pray for myself that the words in my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be found pleasing and acceptable to you, Lord Jesus. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you that you have loved us so extravagantly. Amen. Good morning. Good morning. My name's Kristen, if we haven't met yet. I'm so excited to be here with you all. I'm a little nervous. It's my first time up here. Um, so, but I'm more excited than nervous. <laughs> Um, so if you haven't been with us, or maybe you have and you just need a little refresher, the past few weeks we have been walking through the Lord's Prayer and kind of letting it line by line inform us of how it should transform our prayer lives. And the goal of that is to ultimately bring us closer to the Father, right? But before we get into all that, let me just tell you about myself, because it's my favorite subject to talk about. Um, <laughs> Uh, so I'm married to that cutie over there. His name's Tim. It's actually our, our seven-year wedding anniversary today. I know, I know. Um, and we have two dogs, a cat, and we are expecting our first baby in March. So, thanks, guys. Okay, uh, that's it. That's the end of the sermon. Thank you. No, <laughs> Um, but no, I, I'm the queen of hobbies, so I do lots of things. I like to crochet and listen to audiobooks. Um, I'm learning how to sew, and um, I also really love to cook. So last year, I actually cooked through an entire cookbook, which was quite an adventure. Um, and it was actually a really great way to learn new recipes and ingredients. And recently, I've gotten into cooking different types of cuisine, especially things like Korean food. Now the thing about Korean food or any other cultural cuisine is that it has totally different foundational ingredients than what we're used to. So for example, I'm just gonna go out on a limb here and say that most of you have a good handle on Italian food, right? We're in Trumbull County, okay. Okay, um, so you know those founda foundational ingredients like the back of your hand, you know, tomato, olive oil, uh, garlic, cheese, pasta, basil, you can take those ingredients and make an infinite number of Italian dishes with that, right? So it's the same thing with Korean food, except your foundational ingredients completely change. Instead, we're looking at sesame oil, soy sauce, cabbage, garlic, and Korean hot sauce. They show up in almost every recipe. And for myself, as a home cook, learning how to wield these new ingredients to achieve a really delicious meal really requires reorienting the way that I usually cook. I often have to go online and find advice from experts, like actual Korean people, and I have to be willing to try new things. And thank God, my husband likes to try new things too. 
So today, and really throughout this whole sermon series, that's kind of exactly what we're asking all of you to do. We're trying to discover some new foundational ingredients to incorporate in our prayer lives. So we're going to really start the way that almost everyone else has started, and we're just going to read through the Lord's Prayer, but taken from the Jewish New Testament translation. So it's a little different than maybe what you're used to. So if you'll join me, we'll pray this together. Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us the food we need today. Forgive us what we have done wrong, as we too have forgiven those who have wronged us. And do not lead us into hard testing, but keep us safe from the evil one. For kingship, power, and glory are yours forever. Amen. So today we're going to focus in on the, about seeking God's guidance in our prayers, prompted by the line, lead us not into hard testing, which you may also know as lead us not into temptation in the like traditional version. Now, I would assume that many of us have some experience asking God for guidance, right? We often come and ask things like, should I take that job? Should I marry this person? Is it the right time to buy a house? Is it the right time to have kids? Should I be a part of that small group that starts on Tuesday? Um, should I really bet on the Browns again this year? <laughs> sometimes we get a clear answer, thank God, um, but sometimes we just kind of have to make a choice and we just like cross our fingers and hope we chose the right path. And maybe even with an answer, you're not always sure that it's the best choice because sometimes it's not the most efficient doesn't make the most sense. Maybe your pleas of lead me not into hard testing have somehow continuously led you into times of hard testing. And you're like, did I, did I not say it right? What did I do wrong? Um, or maybe your prayers for guidance have just come up unanswered enough times that you've just stopped asking. So I wonder today if maybe we need a new approach. Maybe we need those fresh ingredients to kind of sprinkle in to our prayer lives. Now, this doesn't mean that there was anything inherently wrong with how we prayed before. I mean, we can all agree that Italian food is delicious, right? But I think maybe with a fresh approach and some new things sprinkled in there, we might find that our prayers grow richer and more fruitful and bring us closer to the Father. And that's really the goal after all. So our first step then is to get a better understanding of who it is we're praying to, who is this ultimate expert that we're seeking guidance from anyway, and what do we mean when we say lead us not into hard testing? What does it look like to be guided by the Father? And in order to get those answers, we're going to spend some time in Deuteronomy 8. So if you get out your Bibles or your app, um, turn with me to Deuteronomy 8. We're going to be here all morning, so we're just going to get comfy, okay? Now, a little recap on Deuteronomy. It's basically all of Moses' final speeches to the people of Israel as they wait in the wilderness, getting ready to enter the promised land. These people have been liberated from the slavery of Egypt, drawn out through the parting of the Red Sea, and have wandered in the wilderness for four decades. If anyone 
like in the history of the universe, knows about receiving guidance from the Father. It is Israel at this moment. Our text actually gives us a pretty good idea of what that experience looked like. So we're going to start in verse 1. Deuteronomy 8, again, if you didn't get it the first time. Be careful to obey all the commands I'm giving you today. Then you will live and multiply and you will enter and occupy the land the Lord swore to give to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you through the wilderness for these 40 years, humbling you and testing you to prove your character and to find out whether or not you would obey his commands. Yes, he humbled you by letting you go hungry and then feeding you with manna, a food previously unknown to you and your ancestors. He did it to teach you that people do not live by bread alone. Rather, we live by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. For all these 40 years, your clothes didn't wear out and your feet didn't blister or swell. Think about it. Just as a parent disciplines a child, the Lord your God disciplines you for your own good. And what a time of discipline that that was. It turns out you can take the people out of Egypt, but it's a lot harder to get the Egypt out of the people. There is trial and tribulation, and the Israelites are often grumbling or stumbling or honestly just outright sitting their way through it. Yet we see that Yahweh, which is God's name in the Old Testament, Yahweh is faithful to provide food, water, and protection from the elements. Imagine walking for 40 years and not getting a single blister. What? What? He declares here that this time in the wilderness isn't arbitrary, it's not random, but it was used to display his goodness and to humble them and test them and discipline them. Now, I think often this idea of discipline, we kind of have a negative connotation. Personally, I think of all the times that I wasn't allowed to leave my room until it was clean. And unfortunately for my mom, I'm a genius, so I would just pull a beanbag chair into the doorway of my bedroom so I could just sit and still watch TV without technically breaking a rule. Um, yeah, she did not know what to do with me. Uh, but there are times where the Lord does discipline or punish in the way that we typically think of um, in Scripture, but that's not really the full picture of what's happening here. Rather, this discipline was educational. It was meant to train and to teach the people about Yahweh, their ultimate provider and the one true God. And it was meant to teach them about themselves, that they could finally figure out that they are people who will often fall short and literally cannot survive without his provision and care. The wilderness was a classroom. As one commentator put it, Christopher J. H. Wright, the irony is that in the very classroom where the Israelites often thought that they were the ones testing God, trying to figure out who this being is, it was actually God who was doing the testing. It was a place for Yahweh to teach and train his people as any good father would teach and train his child. Now, I want to take a second, because if you're like me, you grew up saying, lead me not into temptation. And so that's kind of an interesting phrase, right? So I want to clarify, when we pray, lead us not into temptation or hard testing, it's important to remember that the Lord does not tempt us to sin. 
He did not tempt the people in the wilderness to complain and outrage to Moses or to make a golden calf and worship it. He doesn't dangle the carrot of sin in front of our face as a test of our willpower. That's not how he works. It's not some cruel trick that he is playing. Rather, he seeks, as in the next line of the Lord's Prayer, to deliver us out of the hands of the evil one, not to lead us to it. And you're going to hear more about that in a couple weeks from Jenna, which is going to be awesome. All right, so let's get back on track. We'll, take, uh, we'll talk a little bit more about tests then, which some of you, the idea of a test might, you might be feeling a little itchy, a little sweaty thinking about a test. Don't worry, the one at the end of the sermon is only five questions long. Thank you for laughing. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> But here's the thing about tests. The purpose of a test is determined by the test giver. For example, your English teacher tested you back in the day or maybe recently to see if you could figure out the difference between a noun and a verb. The DMV tested you to see if you had practiced driving enough to no longer be a danger to others on the road. Some of you might need to be retested. But <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not pointing fingers. I'm just putting it out there to consider. Anyway, in a more serious way, the enemy tests us in order to trap and confuse and discourage us. Whereas the Lord gives tests not to trap us, but as an opportunity to live out our loyalty to him and our faith in him and to become ultimately more like Christ. A test can be an opportunity or a trap, depending on whether the one testing us has our best interest in mind. And the good news is, the Father always has your best interest in mind. Our wilderness, that is our times of trial and hardship, can be a classroom for us too. It teaches us something about who we are and teaches us something about who God is. The tests we face give us a chance to really live out our faith and not just talk the talk. The lessons we learn in the wilderness are why trials are necessary and ultimately beneficial for us. It's in these moments that we see God show up in ways that we, beyond what we can even expect or imagine. And it's also the place where we're confronted with our doubts and our shortcomings that we usually like to just hide back in the closet and keep the door shut. When Tim and I came to Region about a year and a half ago, we came with high hopes and a lot of confidence that the Lord was guiding us here specifically. But joining this beautiful church family sadly meant leaving another really beautiful church family. Some of them are here today, so I'm a little emotional. Um, and we left on great terms, and we were excited about what God had in store for us here. But you know, as I transitioned to this new space, I found myself in, of all places, a wilderness. I caught myself grieving, sometimes weeping at inappropriate times or crying for too long. I became insecure and fearful, and I started to have doubts that I had never had before. This wilderness was a classroom for me. The enemy could have used it to ensnare me in my doubts and my fears, and he tried. 
But the father instead used it as an opportunity not to scold me for not having my act together or being grateful enough, but rather to invite me closer, to bring these big feelings to him, to trust him with all of the ugly emotional parts, and to ask boldly and persistently about my doubts. This season taught me facets of myself I didn't know existed. And more importantly, it left me more educated to the ways that God is faithful and steadfast. And I began to truly appreciate my desperate need for him to bring me through time and time again. My wilderness was a classroom, not just to adjust to the change of meeting new people, but for learning greater depths of the Father's love, goodness, patience, and mercy. So while time in the wilderness is both inevitable and necessary and, like I said, beneficial, it's actually not where the Father intends to leave us. So when we ask, lead us not into hard testing, where are we asking him to lead us to? Well, let's turn back to Deuteronomy 8. See, maybe, maybe there's something in here. Um, starting in verse 6. So, obey the commands of the Lord your God, excuse me, obey the commands of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land of flowing streams and pools of water, the fountains and springs that gush out in the valleys and hills. It is a land of wheat and barley, of grapevines, fig trees, and pomegranates, of olive oil and honey. It is a land where food is plentiful and nothing is lacking. It is a land where iron is as common as stone and copper is abundant in the hills. When you have eaten your fill, be sure to praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. So in verse 7, we see that Yahweh is bringing his people to a good land. Now at this point in the story, I know it looks like we haven't gotten very far. That's a lot that happens right here. Um, just trust me. And God has promised for generations now, starting way back with Abraham, to make a great nation basically out of thin air and lead them to this fertile and abundant land. Now to us, this sounds nice. All these things that I just read sound pretty good. But to ancient Near Eastern farmers, this sounds amazing. Life would be so much easier. They would immediately be sitting back and envisioning like shorter walks to get water and tasting the sweetness of fruit without actually having to like garden, <laughs> like work to make it grow. And those of you who have gardens or maybe the literal farmers in the room, that sounds pretty cool, right? Like to not have to work to get the stuff to grow. Almost like just going to the grocery store. <laughs> Okay, you don't have to laugh. It's okay, it's okay. I think it's funny, it's fine. Um, <laughs> now, this land wasn't going to come easy, obviously. Um, there are people already living there. So there are people there enjoying that, those shorter walks for water and enjoying the sweet fruit. But here's the thing. God's promises never wavered. From Abraham to Jacob to Joseph to Moses, God was bringing his people closer and closer to this land, the fulfillment of his promise. 
Now for us, we're often praying for guidance towards our, our idea of a good land, right? Something that we think would make our lives easier or better in some way. Maybe you're thinking of it now, like, oh, if only my job paid me more, or if only my job was less stressful, if only we could just, like, finally get pregnant or stop getting pregnant, if only the torment of this disease or chronic illness would just, like, go away, if only the broken relationships in my life could just miraculously be made whole. These are all good things to desire. And I would even go so far as to say that the Lord desires to bless us with good things, to bring us to a good land of abundance and delight. But what's interesting here in Deuteronomy is that with this promise of all these good things in this beautiful land comes something else. We get a warning. So starting in verse 11... We've just listed all the awesome things they get to look forward to. Verse 11. But this is the time to be careful. Beware that in your plenty you do not forget the Lord your God and disobey his commands, regulations, and decrees that I'm giving you today. For when you have become full and prosperous and have built fine homes to live in, and when your flocks and herds have become very large and your silver and gold have multiplied along with everything else, be careful. Do not become proud at that time and forget the Lord your God who rescued you from slavery in the land of Egypt. Don't forget that he led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its poisonous snakes and scorpions where it was so hot and dry. He gave you water from the rock. He fed you with manna in the wilderness, a food unknown to you and your ancestors. He did this to humble you and test you for your own good. He did all of this so that you would never say to yourself, I have achieved this wealth in my own strength and energy. I feel like in our minds, we think that the time of trial in the wilderness, that's the time to be careful, like when we're struggling. But we see here that triumph, victory, also creates an environment where it is all too easy to stumble. As the great theologian, the notorious B.I.G. says, mo money, mo problems. Our text shows us that like trials, triumph also has this thing about revealing something about us and about God. God is the provider of all good things, and we, in our weakness and our humanity, tend to be a little short-sighted. We get so busy living the good life that the temptation is just to kind of marinate in that goodness without really remembering where it came from. And while the Father delights in giving us the desires of our hearts, even the earthly, temporary, really small ones, he does. It's not, yeah, he takes greater delight and bringing us to a better land. And it's the same with the Israelites. Yahweh is bringing them to a physical, touchable land with actual abundance that they can like eat and drink, you know? But more than that, he's also creating a way for a relationship with him. He has chosen this people to be his, and he has committed to being their God. And that really is the best land there is, right? King David echoes this sentiment in Psalm 16. I just picked out a few verses for us to look at. 
Let's read them for you. You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now this is coming from David. It's a man who went from tending sheep in a literal wilderness to living in a palace and ruling over a nation. And yet, with both of those things behind him, what's the best blessing he could ask for, the best land, the best inheritance he could receive? It's God himself. So I wonder if some of our problems with praying for guidance come from us focusing so hard on our version of a good land instead of lifting our eyes and asking to be shown the better land. Like I said, I came to region. This was my idea of the good land, right? I had lots of high hopes of leading a Bible study and making friends, and I was so pumped. And you know, God has been kind to bless me with those things. But more than that, he showed me that simply seeking him and asking him to get my attention and redirect me towards his version of a good land, he could open up the door to greater intimacy with him. He gave me way more than just a crowd to preach to on a Sunday morning or a ministry to serve in. He gave me more of himself. And all followers of Jesus can rejoice in the better land that he has purchased for us. It's by his blood that we are led to the goodest of good lands. We get to, get to, walk boldly into the throne room of the Father, knowing that Jesus is continually interceding for us. And we stumble and struggle, and we know that Jesus delights, delights in forgiving our transgressions. He doesn't roll his eyes at us. He loves forgiving us. We get to grow in the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Day by day, we wake up citizens of an eternal kingdom, heirs of the best, most beautiful inheritance. And this is true on days even when it doesn't feel true. And for those in the room or online who don't really consider yourselves followers of Jesus, let me just like extend the formal invitation to you now because a better land is out there and it's just waiting. So let's take a deep breath. We're going to recap. We've covered a lot of ground. We did a lot of reading. So let's, what did we say? What did we talk about so far? So first, trials aren't fun, but they're necessary and they usually teach us more about God. Triumph is awesome. We love it. But it can also cause us to stumble when we focus on the victory more than the victor. So you may be thinking, sounds nice. How does this influence my prayers for guidance? Well, let's talk about it. We know that God is faithful to guide us through both trial and triumph. So what then should our prayers really look like? We're going to finish up our Deuteronomy chapter and see. 
starting in verse 18. Remember the Lord your God. He is the one who gives you power to be successful in order to fulfill the covenant he confirmed to your ancestors with an oath. But I assure you of this, if you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods, worshiping and bowing down to them, you will certainly be destroyed. Just as the Lord has destroyed other nations in your path, you also will be destroyed if you refuse to obey the Lord your God. That's pleasant. No, it's not as scary as it sounds. It's pretty a simple warning, actually. It's just telling us to remember. Don't forget. And if you do, then, like, destruction is just going to happen. It's just, it's inevitable. In fact, this idea of remembrance is really the whole point of chapter 8. And honestly, it's the whole point of the entire book of Deuteronomy. Chapter 8 is in this very interesting structure called a chiasmus. And we're going to put that on the screen so you can get a little nerdy if you feel like it. Doesn't that make your little nerdy heart just skip a beat? Um, Basically, if you didn't notice it, it's not a big deal. But basically what happens is that you've got all of your text kind of building up to this main idea, and then it backs off in the exact same way it approached. So for people who are kind of familiar, people who would have known to look out for this sort of structure, it's like these flashing arrows to the main idea. And we even get a little bonus one there at the end. But saying, don't forget. So really, our main idea in chapter 8 is verse 11. So let's read it together just for fun. But at this time, that, excuse me, but that, this, oh my goodness, but that is the time to be careful. Beware that in your plenty you do not forget the Lord your God and disobey his commands, regulations, and decrees that I am giving you today. Did some of y'all read that with me? (laughs) Snaps for you. Thank you. That's nice. Okay. So anyway, what's the point there? Don't forget. Remember. Remember who you are. Remember who God is and all the things that he's done. I have to say, I think that that might be one of the missing ingredients in our prayers for guidance. Asking for guidance isn't just an act of pleading to be spared from the hard stuff and led to the good. I wonder if when we pray, lead us not into temptation, lead us not into hard testing, we could also, in the same breath, be asking, help us to remember. And if you're a practical person like me, let me just tell you, there's lots of ways you can do that. Okay, maybe you just need God to bring something to mind, and you're like, you're good. I'm not that kind of person. Um, So neuroscientists have found that there's great value in writing things down, or telling other people really helps us to remember too. And maybe you're thinking, okay, that sounds nice, but isn't it more important to just keep moving forward? We need to be forward thinking. You know, like, what? that's kind of the point of guidance, right, is that we got to, we got to, go somewhere. We got to keep going. Or as Dory would say, like, just keep swimming, you know. But we want to just keep the, we like to keep the past in the past, right? But here's the thing about remembering. When we look back and we remember, it causes our faith to rise. It causes hope to bubble up inside of us. 
I read somewhere that hope is kind of like a future remembering. It's looking back at the past, taking into account how God has acted in real time with real people in real circumstances and applying that to what we know about the future. And this rise of faith and hope that comes with remembrance is the exact reason why that's the main point of this chapter. It's the reason why the entire book of Deuteronomy repeats the phrase, remember, don't forget, or some version of be careful, 100 times as Moses is trying to mentally prepare his people for entering the promised land. It's why, as Joshua, that's Moses' successor after Moses passes away, leads this same people across the Jordan River into the promised land. And what's the first thing they do? It's not rolling around in joy on the promised land. No, they go back and they get rocks from the river and they build a monument of remembrance so that they could then be propelled to move forward with faith. These people needed faith. They needed to remember who their God was and who he had called them to be. And it's the same reason why Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, instituted communion encouraging us to take part of the bread and the cup as an act of remembrance. To be reminded of who Jesus is and what he did and how it allows us to now walk forward in faith and in hope. Now, I'll be honest with you. I'm here today looking at what feels like a really good land. Not only am I up here preaching to you, which I never thought would happen, but also, after the longest year of waiting, God blessed my husband and I with a baby. And the sigh of relief that came with finally getting a positive pregnancy test, in that same moment came all these new fears and new doubts that I'd never experienced before. And as I pray for guidance on what this transition to motherhood should look like, I've been reminded, thanks to the sermon I wrote four months ago, that remembering is a really good place to start. As I look back at the ways the Father has been present and steadfast all throughout my life, my faith rises, and something so scary and new suddenly feels a little bit possible. Side note, if you're like me and you have a terrible memory just in general, um, maybe those moments of the Father's presence just don't come easily, easily to you. I'll just give you a little insider scoop, a little tidbit for you. We have a place that we can always turn to when we need reminded. We have a whole book full of stories and poems and letters and all sorts of other things that tell us about who God is and how he has cared for his people from day one. And you can know for a fact God will never guide you in a direction that contradicts what this says. So, deliberate remembrance, whether it's found in the pages of the Bible, or in our own recollections, or in practices like journaling or communion, they help us to remember what's true, what's true about ourselves and about God. And ultimately, they help us to remember that our little stories and all of the really small, quiet moments and in all of the chaos and nonsense that all of it fits into a much bigger story. 
a story where the father is bringing all of his people through momentary trials and triumphs and into the eternal good land. So today, as you consider praying for guidance, remember. Remem take some time to remember what the Lord has done for you. Remember who he has revealed to be in the pages of scripture. Remember what he has done for the people and just in this church and what he's done for the whole world. And allow that remembrance to bolster your faith so that you can trust in wherever it is he's leading you next. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are oh so eager to guide us. We pray that you would bring to mind all of the things that we need to remember so that our faith would just be bolstered. That we could love you more, that we could become more like you and be vessels of your love and your peace in this world. We thank you, Lord, for all that you've done. Amen.